Welcome to season two of Overcoming Working Mum Burnout. I'm your host, Dr. Jacqueline Kerr, mum, burnout survivor, behavior change scientist, and TEDx speaker. I interview international burnout experts, HR and DEI leaders, and lifestyle coaches to find out how we can create individual, organizational, and cultural change to prevent burnout. When mums thrive, the world benefits. This week, I'm talking with author and changemaker Reshma Seljani about her controversial new book, Pay Up, and her Marshall Plan for Mums. Reshma describes how being a mother and a CEO pre-COVID worked, but the two during COVID broke her. This was the inspiration for her Marshall Plan for Mums, to provide the support at work and at home to allow mums to survive this crisis. Her book, Pay Up, focuses on what companies and mums can do to create pay equity at home and at work. Despite her achievements in 2021, Reshma is giving up on Congress and focusing on companies where she believes we can have real change to support her 2022 goal of subsidizing childcare at work. We talk about why the focus on mums and why the Greek women's strategy of refusing sex to end the Peloponnesian War is not the answer. Discussions about paying mums seem to create debate and discomfort. Reshma says, bring it on. Only then can we find true gender equality. You can find Reshma's key takeaways on the episode website, www.jacquelinecurr.com. And please listen through to the end where I give some more details about the toolkit for pay up that helps mums organize at work to advocate for subsidized childcare. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. I'm Reshma Sajani. I have two kids and I'm a dog mom. And I'm the author of Pay Up, The Future of Women in Work and Why It's Different Than You Think. So thank you so much for that. So if you can just describe in a little more detail your journey to where you are now in your career, because a lot of moms who listen have career changes potentially due to burnout or just other reasons. I was a daughter of refugees, so I feel like I've had a job since I was 12 years old, from Baskin Robbins to retail to working as a research assistant, you name it. And I grew up in an Indian family where my father said you could be a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer. And so I was always very ambitious about work, very ambitious about education. I knew that I wanted to be a lawyer. I knew that I wanted to be a public servant and a change agent. I graduated law school, grad school with $300,000 in student loan debt. So I thought I'd get a job at one of those fancy law firms. And then after a couple of years, I could take the golden handcuffs off and do what I was really meant to do, which was change the world. And a couple of years turned into 10 and I found myself in a job I hated, you know, in a life I didn't want. I was burned out, 33 years old. And it's funny, I was sitting there, I remember one day in this like windowless conference room and my best friend Deepa called me. And it's funny how your best friend always calls when your life is falling apart. She said to me, just quit. Just quit. And the first call I made was to my dad because I was helping them pay for their mortgage. And he said, just quit. said the same thing. It's time. You know, basically I free you. 
And I quit and I decided to run for United States Congress. I know that's going to sound crazy. And it was crazy for me. Here I was, this working class kid, first Indian American to ever run for office. I had no idea what I was doing. And I naively thought I could shake every hand and meet every voter. Ran for office, Congress, lost spectacularly. And that's what inspired me to start Girls Who Code. And so for the past 10 years, I've been founder and CEO of Girls Who Code, which is a national movement, an international movement to close the gender gap in computer science and technology. And most recently, because of the pandemic, I started a new organization uh, called the Marshall Plan for Moms. And that's where my new book, Pay Up, has really come out of. Is that, that movement I'm building to basically have public and private policies that support mothers and support working mothers. Great. Thank you for that. It's so fascinating to hear all these steps we take. And I know your TED Talk is about that bravery that you had in running for office. So again, it, it's so important for, for mums to hear all these things. So how did motherhood change your career or your approach to life? Oh, it's huge. I always wanted to be a mom. And I always had really big dreams. And I don't know, maybe innately I knew that those dreams might clash. And so I, I was very thoughtful about who I was going to spend my life with. I didn't get married till I was 36, 37. Had my first kid at 39. Sean was the, my first son, best thing that ever happened to me. And I'd spent 10 years, a little bit less than 10 years in fertility treatments. I had a condition called APS. And so every time I was 12 weeks pregnant, I would miscarry. And so I spent six, seven, eight years pregnant, not pregnant, pregnant, not pregnant. And so fertility was such a huge part of my life. And so when I was finally able to have a child, I wanted to make up for um, so much I had lost in that moment. And I wanted him to be part of my story of being a change maker. And so when he was born, I took him everywhere because like, I did not want to be separated from him. So if I had a speech, he flew with me. First time I was on The Daily Show, he was there. Commencement speeches, he was always with me and there. And part of it is because, again, like I said, I didn't want to be apart from him. But secondly, I wanted to show the young women that work for me that you don't have to choose between being a mom and having a career and that it's going to be messy. And I wanted to show them the messiness of it. And the motherhood pre-COVID did not slow me down. And post-COVID, different conversation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I know you had recently written as well on one of Oprah's outlets about your son just recognizing you for folding the laundry instead of for the work you did. That was just such a wonderful article because you really explained the two sides of, yes, you want to be a mom, but you also want to be recognized for all these things you do. So it's not like you hadn't taken your son to see the world through your eyes. <laughs> I was shocked. And like COVID changed all that because then I had two kids running an organization. I am doing all the domestic cognitive, all of it, the cooking, the cleaning, the laundry, the shoes are out, the making sure everyone's safe and you have your mask on and blah, 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 blah. And so, so the story that I tell in Oprah Daily was about my son came home a few months ago with his portfolio. So excited to show it to me. And it was about essentially an entity at the list, what I do and what his dad does. And now, mind you, like I said, I had been super intentional about him seeing me as a boss. 
CEO of Girls Who Code. I mean, he was constantly in Girls Who Code swag, constantly. When I wrote my book, Brave Not Perfect, he would sit right next to me and sign all those books. He knew what I did. And when I opened up his portfolio and it says, well, my mom basically does the laundry and her job is to take care of me. And of course, to my husband, it was like, my dad's an engineer. He knew what his job was, but suddenly mine had been reduced to just what I did at home. And even though in that moment, I'm, I'm literally in this moment of building, writing pay up, building the Marshall River Mom, talking about the importance that unpaid labor is work. I still had this sense of, oh no, that is not just me. What about the other part of me? Wanting him to, no, say it again. Your mom's a CEO. Your mom's a CEO. And he was crying. And I'm so embarrassed because then my husband looked at me like, what's wrong with you? But if we have worked so hard for that part of that identity. And we've also been worked fearing that part of our identity will be erased or taken from us. That we're so protective over it. Even though we know we shouldn't live in a society where it's one or the other. Yeah, it's so complicated. And I thought you did a great job of ending the piece and bringing those two perspectives together. And I think that's what is so strong about your Marshall Plan for Mums is that you're really thinking about mums at home and mums at work. And so that's where I also am thinking about those things because for me, burnout was also work-related burnout and parental burnout. And I think that combination of the two is so hard for mums. So go ahead if you want to share a little bit more about when you were hitting rock bottom during COVID or other times. You mentioned previously that one episode of burnout you'd experienced, but often we experience more than one. All the time. I feel like I'm burnt out all the time, especially in COVID because it's like right now, like I work from home. So I'm like giving an interview or writing something or trying to have some space to think. And at the same time, I have a two-year-old, mama, water, this, that. And this pandemic has been hard for our children. My seven-year-old has some anxiety, constantly eating his clothes, being bullied at school. My my two-year-old is underweight, he's chewing, he can't talk. And I have a speech therapist, but I'm trying to balance what's happened to them and what's happened to me, which has been a massive identity shift and just like basic exhaustion, right? From the pandemic, I mean, the CDC released a report saying 51% of mothers are reporting anxiety and depression. We are the subgroup in addition to 18 to 24 year olds that are, have been affected the most from a mental health perspective. Like I'm exhausted, done, tired, burnt, traumatized. And I think most moms are too. And I think some of the quick fixes, I don't know about you, but before I could go for a walk around the block or even spend a night at a friend's house and I'd come back and I'd feel totally recharged. And now it's not working for me in the same way. And that kind of freaks you out a little bit because we, we also have the sense that we are unbreakable and we are broken. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, when we spend so much time trying to be Superman, when we discover we, we have kryptonite, COVID is our kryptonite, then yeah, it's really um, stressful. And I agree about the self-care. So I would um, run or walk my, my dog every day. So what I say um, is that self-care helps you manage the symptoms of stress, but it does not help solve the inequalities that cause burnout. Sometimes you're not looking after yourself as much as you could. But when you do look after yourself, you can cope with the stress for a little longer. But burnout really is coming, especially for mums, from these inequalities in the home and at work. And yeah, it's it needs more than that. 
Yeah, and I think sometimes, look, I'll be honest, and I sometimes look at my husband, who everyone's like, oh, he Nahal does so much more than my husband. And he's like, oh, okay. But I look at him, and we are dealing with the exact same situation differently. Like when we go on a vacation, I'm packing the boys' stuff, I'm packing my stuff, I'm making sure, and he just gets to walk out with a bag. And I'm like, must be nice. And so I think there's also a lot of envy that I have. And wow, I wish I could have that time, that freedom. And I know so much of the ratio of domestic work between us is a societal construct. And so it's deep in trying to figure out what needs to shift. But you also do sometimes feel like, is this just me? Am I the one? And and then you realize, oh, everyone's going through the same thing. Mm -hmm. And that resentment we have for our partners, resentment is actually a a really good cue to know that you're moving into burnout because that resentment as it starts to go to rumination. And again, it's such a small thing. He didn't pack the clothes for the kids, but it is just a symptom of this bigger problem. And I definitely have found that too, the work with Fair Play with Eve Brodsky and stuff. It's so important that we think about how to work through these issues in the home. But it's not just about that conversation you have with your husband because the culture um, has informed us our whole lives. Because the problem is when you focus on just a conversation you have to have with your partner, like I had a reporter say, why can't you just tell him to do more? And I was like, another thing I got to do? I, I think it's really important to figure out, and I've been thinking about this with Pay Up in my book and about the focus on workplaces and how do we use this moment to actually reinvent workplaces that have never been built to have this conversation. It is Women's History Month, International Women's Day, and there were probably a thousand conversations that happened about get a mentor, get a sponsor, call a culture calendar, like how to fix the women and not fix the system. What we need to be having is conversations of how can my company create more equality at home? How do I mandate paid leave? How do I tie it to performance roof? How do I have men on Monday mornings be like, what? How much laundry do you do this weekend? Seriously. And I know it doesn't sound sexy, but that is the conversation we have to actually be having if we care about getting to equality. So let's now talk about Pay Up. Um, as I shared with you, it's such a fantastic read. I was so excited to read it. And I was reading it on my way to doing a TEDx talk about working on burnout. And it was totally the motivating manifesto I needed to get me through that weekend. And what I think is so fascinating is I come from this from a public health perspective. So I totally see that we need individual, organizational, cultural change. That's what we need for so many of our major public health issues. And I see this as one of those. It's an economic issue that you're focusing it on, but also it's a public health issue because mums are suffering. So yeah, tell us more about the most important messages you want to share from Pay Up. Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing that is women are in crisis, like you just said. Two million women have left the labor market. 51% of moms are saying that they are facing anxiety and depression. And we have this once in a lifetime opportunity to finally make workplaces work for women. And we should never, we should never waste a good crisis. And I, I spent most of my career, like I said, you know, telling my girls, my students to barnstorm the corner office that they would succeed if they just leaned in a little harder and girl boss their way to the corner office. And I was wrong. I found myself in the middle of a pandemic with two little kids running an organization and it almost broke me. And we've learned the hard way that having it all is just a euphemism for doing it all. So we have to stop trying to fix the woman and fix the system. 
We are in this very unique moment right now. The latest jobs reports come out and we have more job openings than we've ever had before. It is literally a seller's market. This is the opportunity for women to not have to choose between having a job or a child. This is our opportunity to ask for what we need. Flexibility, subsidizing childcare, support for our mental health. This is our opportunity to say, we're not going back to a broken system. So if you need us, here's what we need. And this book is really, you know, it's to lay out the framework, the history, right? For some of us who don't know, I didn't know until I started writing this book, so much of what I learned, and then to provide real solutions. So there's a section of what you can ask for if you're an employee, and then what CEOs should be actually putting into place. Yeah, I love that you focus on what can women do and what's the playbook for organizations. And I, and I also love the, the history of it because I had read books like Gail Collins's um, No Stopping Us Now, but you really provided that perspective on the childcare legislation and how that had been sidelined. And also the way you emphasize that we need equality at work in our pay but we need equality in the pay in the home. And I actually changed the line in my TED talk right at the 11th hour because I was going, we need equality at pay so we get equality in the home sort of thing. And I was like, oh no, the way you said it was so much better. We need both. Like an income stream should be coming into the home from the government. Yeah, that was what was so revealing was that when we've been talking about pay equity, it's because we have pay inequality for mothers, that there's a motherhood penalty. That there actually is no pay gap between childless women and childless men. None. The pay gap comes when you become a mom. And part of it is if you take time off, when you re-enter, you lose 40% of your salary that you never make up. So if we built workplaces that allowed you to exit and enter without penalizing you, that would be a game changer not just for your mental health, but for solving the pay gap. So it's wild, right? We've been in this space and talking about this, but then when you get down to like brass tacks, you're like, oh, that's solvable. But the bias towards working with moms is so innate, so deep, so deeply, even, even the discrimination that working women have against stay-at-home moms and the, the mommy worth between us and how at the end of the day, what we want is for everybody, if they want to work, and to not be penalized if they want to go back or not go back, right? And, and to have choice and, and freedom. And I think it was really interesting because you had been posting about this recently about the gentleman whose partner had asked to pay for her time during maternity leave. And my response to that was to say, it's not just maternity leave that we need pay. It's that our whole trajectory is affected your whole earning potential is affected. So yes, of course we need to get this support. It's so fascinating when you see these posts on social media to see the status quo. So talk a little bit more about that and then tell me why you still feel like we can change this because every time I see responses that just suggest there is not a problem and I see what you're saying, we are at this moment in time where we could change things, but I'm still struggling. Despite trying to work in the same area, I want to change things, but I still have cynicism. So fascinating, right? So the post was essentially two couples, both working, have a baby, and she basically wrote a 16-page binder of what the cost is going to be. There were 300 responses to that. And I just read them all weekend. I'm sure you, like, it was so fascinating. So the hopeful piece of this is I think if we posted this pre-COVID, nobody would have cared. 
And I think we're really feeling it right now. And it wasn't just moms. It was a lot of women who don't have children who were like, see, yes, if I have a kid, this is what I want. And so this idea of valuing this unpaid labor, who pays for it? How do you value it? How do you come up with a cost is really powerful. And I think we've made some progress there in even getting to, yes, we should have a conversation about why we feel so uncomfortable when we talk about putting a dollar amount to the unpaid labor that women do. And that is what I think is so fascinating. And so one could argue depressing, one could argue exciting. When I came out to Marshall as a mom, and even pay up, I pay up comes up out on Tuesday, it's going to be controversial. And because this idea of paying up is controversial, because a lot of people believe that motherhood is a choice. You choose, you chose to have kids, so you don't get things from the government or your employer and your partner, that's, that's between the two of you. And so what we're trying to say is that it goes beyond it being a personal choice. It is a societal good. It is an economic issue. And that we have structural breakdowns that are preventing half of our population from fully participating in life. And, and I think that we've never really had that conversation before. And it is a d- deeply American problem. Even the feminist movement, as I talk about in my book, was really focused about workplace equality. We weren't talking about the unpaid labor. The wages for housework movement was, but that was seen as a fringe movement. And there are heroes. Now we're in a moment of we're having a different conversation. And I think we have to make sure that it doesn't go away. I, I think that's right, that we are having a conversation. And again, that it's not being ignored. That's important. And I think the discomfort is something we do have to recognize because I, I think even myself stepping into this space, thinking about equality and burnout, I need to know the resistance that we're working against because that's what we have to understand to be able to make a change. And I think some of that discomfort is, for example, we're not uncomfortable when a dad negotiates a higher salary to support his family, but we're still uncomfortable when a woman does that. So that's what I saw that situation is it was just the woman being penalized for negotiating again. So I agree. I'm I'm glad we're having this discomfort and actually just acknowledging it. Yeah. Other countries pay parental income and and the ramifications of that from an economic perspective are enormous. Like Canada, the UK didn't have this large exodus of women from the labor force. They don't have this issue because they provided that support. So that is what we're saying. Is like if you provide the support, then the entire foundation won't break when you have an economic event. And so that is, that's very important. But I, I find it shockingly, motherhood is controversial. Who would have thought? <laughs> Who would have thought? You know? And I love that you've just embraced it and you've called it pay up to, to create that. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. This is every time, not, of course, not you, but like even when I recently was talking to somebody today and they're like, well, it's, it's all caregivers. I'm like, no, what makes us uncomfortable? Like people get so uncomfortable. I can't say how many times people tried to make you change it from Marshall Plan for moms. Do you really want to say moms? And I said, yes, because the reality is, just like girls who code, it was girls that were being pushed out of the technology workforce. Just like here, it's moms that were pushed out of the labor market. It's moms who are doing two times the amount of domestic labor. It's moms that are doing all of the unpaid work. It's moms that are suffering the mental health crisis right now. And we have got to, it's about focus, not exclusion. 
but in our need to want to make everybody feel involved and to not upset the guys, it's we don't keep our eyes on the problem. And then we can't ask ourselves, well, why is it do we live in a society of which the caregiving is mostly done by women? It's not like that everywhere. And I think one of the things you obviously are mentioning the differences between the U.S. situation and, and, and other countries and coming from the U.K. Originally, I'm very cognizant of that. And in fact, when I interviewed Isabel Roskam, who's a parental burnout expert, she'd done an international study showing that countries like the U.S. have higher rates of parental burnout because of the individualism culture that's here and that that makes it harder for parents to ask for help. So here's another thing that I've noticed that I think is a little unique to the American culture. So whenever I describe systems problems, women don't like to hear it in that way as well because they feel like there is nothing they can do. They want to be in control of their destiny and want to believe, like you believe, that hard work against the odds will succeed. So how do we empower the women to not feel like a victim of this system, but at least to know, hold on, there is a system we have to change and we have to work against. They feel like they can control what they do and how they feel about it, but they can't control whether the system changes. Yeah, we have to stop telling the lie. They call it the big lie. We do. We have to stop telling the lie because the reality is that we're not getting to equality until we solve this problem. Just period. We're not. And yes, it's not true that if you just work really hard, you'll get there. And I think we just have to start telling the truth. And, and I think the structural change, the systematic change is not impossible. We can live in a society that has paid leave, that has affordable childcare, that roots out the motherhood penalty. We can actually fix, like to me, the structural change is within grasp. How many women we know hit our pregnancy? And it's almost assumed that if you get pregnant and you have a job, you're going to wait to the last possible second to tell someone. We've assumed that this is our tax that we have to pay to work in the workforce. And we should be angry by it. We should be all be looking for employers. But the minute we find out, the minute we're telling our family and friends, we're like, hey, guess what? And so we have got to stop in many ways accepting how we've been treated or what we've had to sacrifice and give up in order to participate in a system that was never built for us. And that is really gut-wrenching. I feel like I've gone through this this therapy in writing this book. Because I was like, where do we go from here? But then I started working on the solutions. And I was like, okay, I know where we go. And and I think that is part of also what I see is that solutions are there from the same perspective of how do we solve burnout. There are so many fantastic DEI guidelines out there. There's guidelines from the National Academy of Medicine how to solve burnout. We know what to do at these structural levels. It's the same message, to be honest, for diversity, equity, inclusion, as you'd say for mental health. The two intersect and can be solved in exactly the same way. So the issue is, and and as a public health behavior change scientist, this is one of the things we're always saying is we have evidence. We know what to do. These things don't get implemented. With your Marshall plans for mums, one, I want to hear about what are some of the new things about advocating that you've learned in this whole process, but also what are still the barriers that you think we need to overcome? Because I think we've got to be careful about that. The plan is amazing and it's so solid, but how do we get people to adopt it? How do we get people to sign up? Yeah, I mean, look, Build Back Better is dead and they keep trying to pretend like it's alive, but it's not. 
and waiting for Congress to grow a heart, I like to say, is a losing strategy, which is why I've turned to the private sector. Right. I actually think that the change that we are asking for can start in the private sector and then can extend to government. The thing that I'm obsessed with, and this is why I wrote Pay Up, is can we start mobilizing in workplaces? How do we get to a place where women, and look, I did it, right? I breastfed in a closet. I didn't ask for flexibility. It was easier to just quit mm -hmm. than to ask for what I needed because I didn't want the judgment of feeling like, oh, now you think I'm not committed to my job mm -hmm. because I'm asking for something for my family. So I think that we have to figure out how we get over that and how we start feeling that sense of power, feeling that sense of actually they need to pay up. They owe me. And I'm going to teach myself and my sisters how to ask for what I need. And employers in this moment have to also recognize that what people are looking for, the reason why they have this great resignation people are quitting because they don't want to work for you because they're looking for family values. They're looking to care for their kids or their elderly parents. The hustle culture is dead. So the employers that understand the things that matter to people and if we can, we'll win. And I think the employees, and this is why I look at this book, is if they can start practicing the tactics and then seeing some of the wins that they could get. Not crazy. You, we can get subsidized healthcare in this country. Employers can offer that as a benefit, like healthcare. When we start seeing that, I think that's going to translate into political power. Yeah. And I think that's the, the point when companies realize that they are paying for these things and that the government could and to help their employees they'll start to advocate it for it because they'll see the benefits and they're already paying for it the cost of attrition is so much higher than the cost of you paying for my soccer and it's funny it's interesting companies are paying enormous amounts of money for egg freezing and IVF and other types of benefits so you're going to help me extend my fertility but when I have a child I don't have support it doesn't make sense it's inconsistent so I'm really interested in that, the focus on the private sector too. So here, here's, we'll start to get a little controversial here because it was something that struck me about some of the, the focus in your book. So in your book, you mentioned the Iceland protest where women basically protested equal pay in Iceland and stopped work a whole day. The country stopped down. Fathers were terrified because they had to go get hot dogs and things and it worked. It, it changed their society. But what you're saying in your book is that future generations are looking at us and they don't want to be mums in the way we are mums. And I think they're totally right to be seeing it that way. So I was wondering if we should be protesting a little bit more along the lines of the Greek women who refused to have sex to end the Peloponnesian War. <laughs> so I'm trying to think it is like pay up before you have a kid. And so I'm trying to think through that part of your book really hit me in terms that we are so not setting up the next generation to succeed if we don't focus on it. I think the hard part of what you're saying, or the interesting thing what you're saying is, so I thought when I got married, I had learned, my parents got an arranged marriage, but my father actually did a lot of the unpaid labor because they were refugees and they just, they had to both do stuff. But a lot of the other women in my community were doing most of the work. So I was very intentional about marrying somebody that it would be different, that we would be at 50-50, maybe even 60-40 him. And then when we had a kid, everything changed, and everything changed because of policies of which I took my maternity leave and he didn't. So to me, it's less about 
controlling our partners and making the deal up front. I think that's a piece of it, having real clear lines, but also making sure that society follows. I think that there are a lot of men that I meet that want to take time with their children. But for example, when they want to take paid leave, they're gaslit at work when they do. And so we don't have enough, you know, in Philippines, they have a whole campaign that like laundry is love. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine LeBron James and Snoop Dogg doing a commercial about doing the laundry? That's what we need. That is so important because even though you said you really wanted to keep it focused on mums, and I feel like with paid leave, we've definitely seen that talking about caregiving as a whole is is an important part of this messaging. Because I also thought about it from other sort of successful sea changes, and you were talking about some of those in your book in terms of mothers against drunk driving and things. Yeah, there are so many times we can have these successful sea changes. And one of them that I was studying recently was around same-sex marriage, how the attitudes to that change really quickly. And part of it is that if we think about caregivers as a whole, as a bigger group, we can have more people buy into that in some ways. So I wondered about like male caregivers in politics. Is this what we have to be focusing on? Do we have to go to the stealth way to get these changes if as women we're struggling? I think so here's the thing. I think we should start talking about caregivers. That everyone who thinks that's relevant to them are women. And we're not talking about why are the vast majority of caregivers still women and getting to the place where we get to equality. So it's almost like Marshall Mother Moms, part of our strategy is to change the gender equation. You know, it's to mandate paid leave for men. That is a mom strategy. You hear what I'm saying? Exactly. But it is focused on not just mandating paid leave, but mandating paid leave for men. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And we know that from the default, like from our behavior change science, it's the default that makes a difference. People have to opt out of this dang thing instead of opting into it. And, and that's what changes it. I, I really do believe now, I went through this with Gold to Code is that by, we think by naming it, we're exacerbating inequality. And I think by trying to gender neutralize it, sometimes we're exacerbating gender equality. If I had called Gold to Code Kids to Code, I would not have taught half a million girls to code because we wouldn't have been having the conversation. Why is it that women are driven out of technology? Similarly here, if we weren't calling it Marshall Plus we wouldn't have the conversation. Why do we need a Marshall Plus? Why is it? that 27 times more men are entering the labor force right now. It is a bull market for men. When two years ago, 51% of the labor force was female. We've literally shifted the gender equation in 24 months. Mm-hmm. That's all about care work. And so by not calling it moms, I think you're making it worse right now. Because you're not having the gendered conversation, which we need to have. Oh, I'm so glad you say that. Because obviously, this is overcoming working mom burnout. It could have just been burnout or parental burnout. But I think the things that affect moms are so different. These inequalities and the culture expectations are different. But I think, like you said, we do have to have a vision through advertising and, and, and role models of men as very capable caregivers. And we haven't done a good job about that doing that and we joke and we talk in the two is it about making it sexy is it about making it like what are the things there's no study out there that's even looked at at why is it that way Mm -hmm. so we don't even know what to fix that's i think it's so important to talk about it from a gender perspective so that we can actually solve it and get to the world where we don't have to talk about it from a gender perspective 
yeah, we need to get people angry about it. And, and like you say, we, we need to have those uncomfortable conversations about it. And if the mum and if the pay up label makes us have those conversations. I mean, you find that sometimes it's like being controversial, being edgy is what makes people be like, disagree. And then you have it like, okay, that's interesting. Like payments to mom. People are like, what? Payments to mom. But it ignited, ignited a conversation and ignited a movement. So. And actually, one of my TEDx talk speakers that was at the same event as I was, Jen Whitmer, she talked about conflict. And when we avoid conflict, we have a fake peace. Yeah. So we have a fake peace unless you say, pay up and mom. So I love it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. So you have a most amazing list of achievements from 2020. I received those in your newsletter and I was printing them out in terms of the child tax credit, donations from the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, 18,000 women have signed their name to the Marshall Plan, the, the early work you did in getting the open letter to the New York Times, the bill, the Marshall Plan for Mums bill that, that was introduced. You've had such an amazing achievement list in 2021. What are you going for in 2022? I want to get companies to subsidize childcare. That's like my goal. Okay. And we're going to make it happen. Right now, less than 10% of companies do. And I, and I think the second piece I would say is we're going to start, you know, organizing moms and workplaces. People think, oh, we can't do that. It's not possible. And I think we have to show that the private sector in workplaces, and if we can start getting moms to have success in changing policies for them, I think it's game over. And I think there's some great examples of that. I know with the double shift, they have done podcast episodes on successful paid leave advocates at work. So we do need these role models. We need mums to hear yes. that and know I can do it too. You're absolutely right. The other women who have brought about change in their workplace. Yeah, that's right. That's All right. those case studies yes. yeah, to show us we can do it. I also think just thinking about advocacy generally, because again, you must know this so much from your now long experience of it. But really, one, it's a long game. Two, we have to have a win-win. And three, who in fact are the decision makers here? So yep. I think it's so interesting that you've left Congress out of this now because they're not effective decision makers on this. They're not effective decision makers and they're unreliable and we cannot wait for them to bring relief to moms. And that doesn't mean that we're not coming for them at the end. So yeah, in terms of that's such a clear goal, companies subsidizing childcare for any company, for any moms listening to this, what are the steps to take there? Get my book. Sign up to be a pay-up advocate. Have it spark a conversation, whether it's with your partner, whether it's with your girlfriends, whether it's at work, and recognize that this is our moment. This is our moment for change. I, I also want to say to moms, give yourself grace. We've been living through trauma, and we know that moms are suffering, and we assume that moms never break, but our, our hearts really are broken. So in many ways, I wrote the book because I wanted moms to feel seen. And I wanted us collectively to commit to not going back to the old normal. And it's a fantastic roadmap. It really is. It's such a great roadmap. There's su such clear advice for companies and for moms on what to do. And I know it's hard to start new habits, but that's definitely where I come from, behavior change. But essentially, we need role models. We need to know we're not alone. We need cues. We need things to remind us to keep doing this. 
So again, the more we can be having these conversations and learning where the win-win is for all of us, that's going to be so important. Let's not waste this crisis. Let's not let our pain be in vain. We have a once in a lifetime opportunity to reinvent the workplace. If you don't know where to start, that's what I'm saying, get the book, pick up, you know, our toolkit, sign up to be a pay up advocate. We will walk you through it, tell you exactly what you need to do to not feel like you have to pick between having a job and a kid that you can have both and have both in a healthy way. Thank you so much for having this conversation with me. It was so great. Thank you so much for listening to this bonus episode today. As Reshma mentioned, get the book and download the toolkit from marshallplansformoms.com slash payup. You can find the link in the episode takeaways and resources page at drjacquelinecurr.com. I'm going to take a minute here to describe the toolkit a little. As you know, I like to support behavior change strategies. In the toolkit, session one confronts the myth of the ideal worker and what that myth has cost mums. In session two is a creative exercise to imagine what workplaces would have been like if they had been created by mums. Session three sheds light on the hours of paid and unpaid work participants do in a day. Session four presents a list of policies and practices that make workplaces work for mum and invites participants to consider what changes would be meaningful for their lives. Session five explores what could hold participants back from seeking change. Session six develops the Marshall Plan for me at home and at work. And session seven offers a way that participants can take the work forward and hold each other accountable for achieving the goals they've set for themselves. I'm excited to be part of this movement. And as Reshma said, I think we can be successful at organizing a work and we can succeed in creating change in our workplaces. This is an achievable goal. You might have noticed in the intro and episode that I mentioned being a TEDx speaker. This was such an amazing experience and I was glad to have Reshma's book with me on my journey as a motivating manifesto that aligned so much with my multi-level approach to burnout. I'll be doing a mini episode about my TEDx experience in the coming weeks so others can also consider stepping up to share their story. Please view the talk on YouTube or contact me through my website, drjacquelinecurr.com, and I will send you the link when it is released. I also have a question for you. Does your company recognize the issue of burnout, but you haven't yet found the solutions that work to retain talent and improve employee well-being? If you think my approach to burnout could be helpful for your organization, please contact me through LinkedIn or my website. Remember, as a behavior change scientist, I'm satisfied with nothing less than real measurable behavior change, not attitude change or good intentions. I deliver actionable solutions. As a TEDx and keynote speaker, I can provide an empowering talk to kickstart your efforts and get everyone on the same page because burnout requires individual, organizational, and cultural change. And I can provide a strategic plan, target behaviors, and clear steps. If you already have external programs in place, I can provide a behavioral analysis and evaluation to see if they're really working. If your company is demonstrating that it really cares through meaningful internal and external investments and regular assessments, 
but you're struggling to implement policies and changes that have impact, I can help identify the roadblocks and provide a collaborative process to help you make progress. My goal is to prevent burnout and empower working mums to keep changing the world. And please remember, burnout can be related to serious health problems. If you're experiencing physical or mental health symptoms, please contact a health provider or call the appropriate helpline. This podcast does not replace medical advice. Please take care. Feel the pain.